Welcome to Living My Breastless Life podcast. I'm your host, HPG. On season three of the podcast, we're diving in to the helping profession. I have found that almost always there's a catalytic event that leads people to help others. You'll hear a variety of folks share what they do, why they do it, and the unique ways that they help. This season will mostly be guest interviews with some fascinating people and a few surprises for y'all along the way. So let's go. 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 today's episode, I had the pleasure of chatting with Daniel. Daniel is a traumatic brain injury survivor, an LCSW, and has a private therapy practice. Daniel specializes in EMDR, as well as other therapy practices, and I really enjoyed my chat with Daniel, and I thank you all too. So Daniel, tell us what you do. Yeah, so I am a licensed clinical social worker in the state of Colorado. And I have my physical practice located in Denver, but then I can also do online therapy throughout the state. So, But our therapy services really focus in on trauma, healing, as well as the intersection with trauma and TBIs and working with people to increase their quality of life through healing from the guilt, the shame, identity challenges that really kind of carry with a TBI or from and can really get in the way of recovery. Yeah. So for folks who are listening, TBI stands for traumatic brain injury. And um, Daniel, tell us what what led you to being an LCSW and your private practice. Yeah, so that that was a big one in July 2009. So in between my junior and senior year, I was in an auto accident and actually sustained my own TBI. So that is kind of where everything got into motion. Um, it was a pretty it was a pretty severe traumatic brain injury. So I did I did brain surgery. Did 10 days in the ICU, seven days inpatient rehab, and then um, three months of physical therapy and 17 months of speech therapy. Wow. It was a long road of recovery and there was a lot of challenges, a lot of positive points as well. But you know, inside that process, your, your mentality, your, your overall recovery kind of gets tested, right? And you're kind of like, is this worth it? Is like what's going on here? How long do I need to be patient? Right, and recovery is that day by day piece. Sometimes it does get easier. Sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that and being so transparent. I'm sorry that you had to go through that, but it sounds like it led you to the path that you're on today, helping other folks. Yeah, for sure. So it's it was around the inpatient rehab time that I noticed I would probably end up 
somewhere in the helping profession, but I didn't know where. And then, you know, working with my speech therapist for a year and a half, I got to know her pretty well and figured out it would probably be in some sort of outpatient, inpatient capacity. Not really sure. And then a lot stemmed from a conversation with my sister, who is also a social worker. So she was like, check check out this profession. You can do a lot. So that's kind of where where everything started. When you're working with folks, what are some common themes that you see? In recovery in general, not just like, not just pertaining to trauma or TBIs. We also work with people who have bipolar symptoms or depression or anxiety. But sometimes when you're starting recovery or trying to get the path of recovery going, it can be really hard to hold hope that recovery is possible. And I think those are those points where sometimes A, to have the discussion around with the person, but B, sometimes that's also where the therapist will hold hope for for a little bit to say, let's just give this a try, right? Let's not even worry about recovery. Let's just Let's just get some momentum going. And then in turn, through engaging in therapy, then they're like, that person's, you know, says, I can hold my own hope, right? So, so that's, those are some, that's one of the themes that I see. I think a big one, especially related to trauma, TBIs, is, is this feeling of maybe I'm not worthy to get better and, and working to, or more so like I'm damaged goods, right? And working to shift not only the body sensations and how the nervous system responds to to that, but also targeting the nervous system with interventions. We do a lot of eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy and working to shift those cognitions around, maybe I don't feel worthy yet, but what am I going to be doing that's going to make me feel worthy in a week or two weeks or three weeks, right? Say more about the eye movement techniques. I'm really interested in that. Yeah, so EMDR, so eye movement desensitization reprocessing therapy was originally created for trauma, but right now the the research is growing and its efficacy to support healing from depression symptoms, self-harm urges, so it's really starting to expand and it's really neat anxiety as well. But, and, it, and it's kind of misleading because it's eye movement desensitization reprocessing. And most people understand like that there's going to be eye movements left to right, right? But you can also do that with tapping. You can cross your arms and you can tap, right? As long as you're, as long as you're crossing that uh, midline of your body, you can engage that your body's innate ability to self-heal. And for EMDR, they call it's called um, the Adaptive Information Processing System, right? And that AIP for short. And that's essentially talking about like if you cut your hand <clears throat> you know, baking or cut or cooking, you don't have to consciously will your skin to heal. Right? Your body does that naturally. And that and that innate and it that innate ability then is also there in the nervous system. But it's those pieces of guilt and shame and feelings of you know not being worthy or being damaged that are almost 
little toxic toxic pieces inside the nervous system that then create the symptoms, right? So can EMDR be done like through telehealth online? Mm-hmm. They can. Yeah, I think that was one of the big pushes with COVID. I mean, COVID caused a lot of pain and a lot of you know, financial hardship for not only people, but the world and a lot of trauma. And there was also this huge push towards telehealth systems and services. And now what we're seeing are these people in rural areas can be connected with care and not have to drive two or three hours to the mountains. That's wonderful. I'm curious about EMDR for myself. So that's really good to hear that it can be done online. And I've also heard that people feel pretty fatigued after. It can be fatiguing, yes. I've worked with people too that have not been fatigued. So, you know, I, because I have a day job, I usually do my sessions in the evenings. So, and or on the weekends. So there are sometimes I do EMDR sessions at eight o'clock at night here in, you know, in Colorado. And people are still able to, you go to bed on time, you know, wake up and still carry on the next day with their normal normal job routines and stuff. How long, when you're doing EMDR, how long does it take to experience relief from some of the symptoms? So that's a really good question. It's going to be unique to every person. I cannot give a time frame. I would feel like I would be lying to the listeners. I will share my experience that I have seen people reprocess the traumatic memory in one to two sessions. I've also seen people reprocess uh, or work on reprocessing a memory for three or four months, almost weekly sessions. So it's, it can, it's going to vary, right? But I think what, what's important to note is that it's effective. How long are the sessions, each individual session? So typically... EMDR runs 90-minute sessions. I do 50-minute sessions for for just my practice. Um, there are some people, and I do myself, um, there are EMDR intensives. So they will be like a 90-minute phase. So EMDR is broken out into eight phases. So I'll do phase one or two in a 90-minute session, and then, and three, sorry. And then, Phase four, which is the actual reprocessing or desensitization of the memories, will be for four hours straight. And then we'll do a closure after for another 90. Now, can I guarantee that that memory will be reprocessed during that time? No. And what I've seen from experience is that those intensives are really good for single incident traumas, like maybe a car accident, right? Or something, or witnessing something horrific. I don't, I, I would foresee quite a few challenges arising if those intensives are being used to help support people who have experienced chronic trauma as a child right, or prolonged exposure. So, like CPTSD, complex post traumatic stress disorder. Yes. Right. So, it, it may take longer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I and I and I've seen that for my individual sessions that aren't intensives as well as as well as for um, the intense area the intense sessions too. So it sounds like weekly sessions, fifty or ninety minutes 
for several months. Did I understand that correctly? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to depend on what that person has experienced in their life, right? If it's prolonged exposure to neglect or trauma, sexual abuse as a child, physical abuse, it's pro- you're probably looking at a longer, a longer um, treatment period versus somebody who has a single incident trauma. Do folks have to relive the trauma or traumas? So in terms of EMDR, it would be no. Because in another part of EMDR, which is really phase two, really focuses on building the skill. It's called dual awareness, right? So it's paying attention to here and now. Mm -hmm. And then also tapping into some of those past memories of the trauma. So you're in two different time frames. And what that does is that protects your nervous system from going into a fight or flight or freeze response and just shutting off, shutting down or running, running really high. And that's where, you know, people talk about like I'm re-traumatized, right? Because I thought about that. And that's where that dual awareness protects that because your body's staying here and now you're the person staying here with me. And that's part of the tapping, right? They're feeling that in their body, but their mind is also paying attention to these past pieces that are causing trauma or trauma related symptoms. And thank you for what you do. And, you know, it's fascinating. I'm a cancer survivor and it's fascinating how you can take your obstacle and turn it into an opportunity to help others and to still grow. And I really resonated with the like finding hope, you know, what's on the other side of what we are surviving. So I think that's so amazing. Yeah. If we can, if we can turn those little chunks of adversity that, that maybe we experience or the large chunks, right? I mean, surviving cancer, it's not, that's not a, you know, just a trial of antibiotics, right? There's a lot more to that. If we can change those adverse experiences into, into platforms to almost elevate our lives and to pursue our passions, right? That energy rarely fades, if at all. And then we can really impact our communities, which is beautiful. That is beautiful. I'm in recovery from alcohol also. And, you know, is EMDR good for folks who have history of substance use? So that is something I will say is not one of my fortes. From what I've learned doing my EMDR training, there are specific EMDR protocols for addiction so that we can target urges or we can target cravings, right? And try to get them down. So then maybe we can see just overall functioning or overall functioning and quality of life increase and maybe the substance use decrease. There, There is a part around EMDR because we are working with the, in, the nervous system. We are working with the brain, right? That we would need to try to limit use an hour or two before session and an hour or two after because that may may limit the effectiveness of the session. I can definitely see substance use putting people at risk, of, more at risk of experiencing trauma, right? Because you're in a vulnerable state if you're using, right? Either incapacitated or even like a DWI, right? If you get into an accident and you could harm yourself, right? Or almost die. So I definitely think the trauma pieces can relate to that. Yeah, and you're, you know, when you're using substances, your nervous system is dysregulated. 
Yeah, and sometimes people use substances to regulate the nervous system, right? Because of past trauma. I mean, it can be it can be very complex, and and I think that's where therapy needs to be very very intentional because we also don't want to take away a coping skill or or a coping method, even if it might even if, if it might not be the most adaptive, right? It's working in some fashion. It, it has some level of function. Definitely. What do you see like folks who finish EMDR when you get feedback from the folks that you work with? What are some things that you hear that have improved? There's eight phases, right? So we will pick a memory and we'll reprocess it, even though there are other memories that are still need to be reprocessed, right? So at at the end, people say like, I can talk to myself with more self-compassion. I'm able to have an interaction with a family member that I wasn't able to have before. I no longer think of the guilt and shame of losing so-and-so. It's still there because it's a, it's a life experience, right? But I can also feel the joy of what that relationship meant to me, right? So, I mean, I mean, those pieces, like again, EMDR does not take care of any functional any adaptive responses, right? Guilt and shame are sometimes adaptive and we can't reprocess adaptive things. But if there are those pieces in terms of like a loss of somebody that you care about where it's like, I don't, I should have been there to stop it, right? I should have, you know, called the check-in, whatever, right? Those pieces can be dysfunctional. And EMDR can help reprocess those pieces out that, you know, maybe that cognition would shift. Maybe that cognition would shift to that person made their made made their own decision. Yeah, guilt and shame and fear um, that will keep you stuck. And if nothing else, you know, the old saying goes, "Shame dies in you know when stories are told in safe places." At least maybe it could take some of that shame away. Thank you so much. Where the listeners, um, where can they find you, Daniel, to talk to you more about your services? For sure. So you can follow me on online Instagram at revitalize underscore mental health. I'm on TikTok as well, Facebook. Otherwise, they can check out the website. I have some pretty, pretty interesting blog content around there about EMDR and TBIs and just mental health in general. And that is revitalizedmentalhealth.com. Awesome. I'll make sure to link this in the show notes so folks can go to your website or your socials. And thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Living My Breathless Life. Head over to Instagram and follow According to HPG to stay connected to the show. Go get your mammograms.